Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's episode is a real treat. That's because I'm talking to an underwriter with encyclopedic knowledge and over 35 years in the insurance industry. But what makes this interview special is that I'm talking to someone with huge experience, but very specifically, the opportunity to put all that experience into practice for a second time. Paul Brand was Chief Underwriting Officer at Catlin for almost 30 years. Just under five years ago, he founded Convex with Stephen Catlin, taking over the CEO role in the summer of 2022. Convex is proof that there's nothing like knowing what to do and how to do it to help with speed of execution. It took over 30 years to get Catlin Group to a GWP of just under $6 billion. As Convex approaches its fifth birthday, it's likely to surpass $4 billion in GWP this calendar year. But listening back, this podcast is really about underwriting. It's all about how to be a good underwriter, but more importantly, how to build and scale an excellent underwriting business. Paul Brand is someone who has spent most of his career outside the limelight, and it's really enjoyable to witness him moving to the centre stage and making his distinctive voice heard. He's very considered and thoughtful, but at the same time full of dry humour. He's also incredibly generous with his time, and highly tolerant of me and my constant questioning. So listen on, and enjoy the podcast. Paul, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, it's lovely to be back. We were remarking before we turned on the microphones that it was probably at least a couple of years since you came on the show, which in convex years is more than most. So give us an update. Where are you in terms of GWP, headcount and everything else? Absolutely. I mean, time is moving very rapidly. We started the business back in 2019. So we're just sort of coming up as we get into 24 to being five years old. Feels like a little bit of a milestone. From a top line point of view, we'll end 23 right around $4 billion. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little That's bit That's what less. you were saying sort of in mid-year when I last yeah, saw an interview yeah, with you. Yeah, so it's not changed. And we're also, uh, we'll be 450 people at the end of the year, which again is broadly in line with our plans. And around this time of year, people are planning what they might be doing next year. Perhaps you don't have to plan in the same sort of way. But next year, what would you be looking towards? Would you be looking to be preempting what you're doing? We're anticipating we're going to see prices continue to rise during 2024. And uh, I would expect Convex to grow. So far, you can sort of almost look at it and go, we've got 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion. Um, so it's five in year five. <laughs> who knows what happens next, but there's a certain pattern there. Not 1, 2, 4, 8, and it's more like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I think it'll be difficult to double between <laughs> 23 and 24. If we can, it will be because, yeah, something's gone horribly wrong, I would imagine. So coming back to sort of 2023, we'll end the year at around 2.5% market share of our what we think of as our addressable market. Our long-term plans, and this will be very market-dependent, and we've been in this extraordinary position where we've seen nothing but rates increase ever since we got going, okay? And that's not being consistent with the entirety of my insurance or reinsurance career. I've seen periods of time where you actually see prices go down. So depending upon what's happening to the price outlook, I would anticipate that Convex might, in the fullness of time, get broadly up to a 5% market share and lead more business and be more influential if we do everything right and if that's what our clients and our distribution want. Do I have a, we're going to get there in 2028 or 2027 or I don't put a date on that because it's dependent upon a lot of uh, very moving things. 
The last time I spoke to you was down at Monte Carlo for the Monte Carlo special that I did down there. We always get accused of groupthink happening down no, at Monte I read Carlo that, yeah. and sort of group speak. And actually, you're the only person who used the word brittle to describe the market. That really made me think, actually, sort of on the way home. We should go into more about what you really meant by the market being brittle. Is it slightly less brittle now that we've gone a little further without having a loss? I would still say it, it's very brittle. Yeah, so Monte Carlo is immediately followed by CIAB, and the conference round goes round and round, and Barden, Barden, APCIA, Cirque in Singapore. Exactly. Yeah, so there's an awful lot of talk about casualty tales wagging again, and actually reserves really stepping out beyond where people might have thought they might end up other than perhaps um, Stephen Gatlin, um, who did predict some of some. Of I this. do. I was going to, yes, I, I remember I was not doing the podcast then. I was more on the news desk in my previous incarnation. And I remember there was something we would remark upon because Stephen was saying that there was a bit of a casualty reserving hole as far as he could see it that was going to manifest at some point. In a bit of sort of our office banter over the news desk, we'd say, he would say that, wouldn't he? He's rather talking up his own game because obviously these are losses he's not going to have to pay. But actually, I suppose... It does seem that some of those chickens have come home to roost. So we should apologise to Stephen for, for <laughs> accusing him of doing marketing to get headlines, because I think he really meant it, and he was right. Well, I think he probably meant it, but the fact that it was also talking our own game, so to speak, is... Well, there's nothing wrong not, with talking your own game is, anyway. It's not, not necessarily the worst crime in the insurance and reinsurance world. So I don't think that's helped in terms of how brittle the market is. But really, shareholders are quite justifiably saying, we've not really made the types of returns that we might expect. And you can see that through uh, share prices. You can see that in uh, mergers and acquisitions. You can see that in some turnover CEOs and various other things. It's not a market, particularly on the carrier side. I think it's been a very different story on the distribution side, where they've been tremendously successful and good luck to them. But on the carrier side, there's not been that same sense of really getting after the things you need to get after. And whether that's technology and technology driving cost or technology and technology driving insights or really being able to think through what the downside risk to the capital is. The reason why prices have gone up pretty consistently from 2019, end of 2018, is because there's not been this influx of capital to come and go, right, this business is fantastic and everybody can make tons and tons of money. Because that's not been the experience. So more recently, so we've had some very decent returns. So it's, do you think with the investors, I mean, more of a stock market saying is that bull markets climb a wall of worry. Are they still in the worry phase? They're still worrying about you? Yeah, I think there's certainly a fair bit of worry out there. And I don't think that goes away just because you might have a couple of good quarters or maybe string that together and have a good year. We've had decent quarters in the context of a very expensive year. For catastrophe, this is today talking about property particularly, that pain has been passed on to those buyers of reinsurance. More if we look at their results, their comparable results, is that you can see that the pain of those frequent, perhaps not quite so severe catastrophes, but very, very frequent and, and everywhere, has been borne by them but not by reinsurers to the same extent, which certainly five years ago, that would have been a terrible year for all reinsurers because we'd have picked up perhaps more than their fair share of all of those things. Just been another bad year after five bad years in a row. Are they not picking up on that? Investors saying, well, goodness, actually, you know, they have got their house in order, the reinsurers in this space. 
or specialty underwriters generally, just underwriters who are slightly more removed, who are not core primary writers in the world? I mean, they will always try and predict, essentially, what happens next. What's their job to discount into the future? Yeah, exactly. And so you've got a couple of competing things. You've got climate change and how that might or might not be affecting catastrophe losses. And certainly, as you think about the spread of losses and where they're coming from and the attention to secondary perils and all of that stuff, clearly quite a lot of stuff going on there. So you've that's inflating. And so you're predicting into the future how much that will continue to inflate. You've then got casualty inflation and social inflation, and then just inflation inflation also, again, just pushing increases of losses into the marketplace. And then against that backdrop, you've got changes in terms of conditions, and you've got price increases for both the reinsurance industry and the insurance industry. So if, if you're an investor into one of these businesses, you've got to kind of look at all of those moving parts and go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. It's, it, the time is right, I, and I'm going to get in. But you're also looking at everything else and all the other opportunities you've got to invest in other things. And those are also improving at different rates too. And so then people tend to look backwards and they go, well, what has actually been the performance of these management teams, these businesses? To what extent have they run successful strategies? To what extent have they told us things that have then proven to actually be true? And a lot of the cases, people have told them things that have proven to be untrue. Not deliberately. I'm not sort of saying everybody's going out there lying to their investors. Not a very sensible long-term game, is it? No, no, no. But the predictability that what happens next, and you think about pandemics, you think about Ukraine, you think about the awful situation in the Middle East at the moment, and let alone... Yeah. It is a timely reminder to anyone who invests in insurance is that we do get all these unexpected things happening, and it's part of the game. We're all human, and we have this recency bias, and, but looking at what's happened recently, one would assume that feels like there's more risk, even if it's statistically it's not true, or there's statistically it's only slightly more risk. It just feels probably from an investor's point of view that there is more risk. There's a lot more risk. And I think you've just summarised what I've been blabbering <laughs> on about very well. Yeah, it's the recency bias that actually is likely to keep people sat on the sidelines until such time as you go, well, the recency is actually Pretty good property now. casualty insurers and reinsurers making a ton of cash. And that's, um, that's, that's a good recency to have. But we haven't, I suppose you're right to say that we haven't had we enough haven't, of we, that yet. We haven't had, an, it does not that recent. On that question of brittleness, well, I'm sure you don't feel brittle and you wouldn't sit here saying that you are feeling brittle. You said that the market felt like it was quite brittle, i.e. that it wouldn't take much to shatter it. Now that the market is still improving, do you feel more robust in your own appetites, though, to say, well, we could take on more? One, we'd like to do more and we'd like to take on more capital and move faster. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated. 
which is why our synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one. Very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. We're trying to be thoughtful about lines of business that we get into. And when we were thinking about what the portfolio of Convex was going to be and how it's going to be shaped, and we tried to take an approach, we call it activity one, of do we think we can make money through the cycle in these lines of business, as opposed to just will we make money for the next two or three years? Because fundamentally, we're a customer-facing business, we're a service industry, and you've got to be able to stay with those clients a bit through thick and thin, one way or another. The only way of doing that is to be sustainable, i.e. that you could be profitable throughout that cycle and so that you can always be there. Yeah, absolutely. But you don't have to make profit every single quarter. But what you do have to do is have the expectation that over time you're creating value for your clients by transferring risk to your balance sheet. And you're also creating value for your shareholders by giving them a decent return through that period of time. And then obviously other stakeholders like regulators and employees are really important as well. But those portfolio views, we could be wrong. We think we're right and we're doing analysis to kind of get a reasonable level of certainty, but you should never get absolutely convinced that you've got it right. And the world is likely to surprise us. It does feel that it's kind of set up that way. If we got surprised, would we ignore it? Well, no, of course we wouldn't. We'd think, okay, well, somebody slapped us around the face with a dead fish. Um, and then we need to price for dead fish. We hadn't bothered before. Well, yeah, we didn't or you know just about need it. to adapt to how events and how time and, and actually your view of the world, how it unfolds as you go forward. Well, it's good that you're never going to succumb to arrogance. That doesn't sound very arrogant of you, if you know what I mean. Obviously, no, no wonder I should ever be arrogant because that's exactly when they get slapped around the face yeah, by, the, by the wet fish. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> My favourite parable is Icarus. And Icarus is brilliant because can you imagine all that skill and been putting you know, wings on yourself and, yeah, and the wax and then yeah, like an idiot you fly too close to the sun and <laughs> crash and burn. It's, yeah, so, yeah. But you feel that you've got enough knowing what you know and the fact is that you do know a lot because you've been around longer than other people so you have more experience and so you know all the things that you know can go wrong because they all have gone wrong in the past I don't and know then you know things. probably to leave a margin for those unknown things that might go wrong so having said all of that do you feel that we're in a more robust place than we were and that you feel more confident that even when these unexpected things happen you'd still be in a good place to deal with them and financially so you have the absolute, how confident should you feel about anything? Okay? <laughs> and you have the relative. You know, so I'm happy with the way the convex approaches risk, particularly as you think about it as uh, from a relative point of view. So are we doing all the sensible things plus a little bit more? Are we appropriately conservative? Are we well capitalized for the risks that we're taking? Yeah. Could you see some extraordinary events happen that are beyond the envelope? Absolutely. You can see that as well. And yeah, you go through different stress test scenarios because it's very good for you to think about, okay, you're out of business, what went wrong? And yeah, and just try and dwell on the downside. What are the things that you can take you out? Being someone who's so experienced, having been through difficult markets 
of the past. This hard market in reinsurance, has it affected the way that you've developed in any way? And obviously, one has to be opportunistic when you see, let's say, property is better than casualty in the main overall. How has your balance of your portfolio changed in response to the way that the market's balanced? I don't think it's just been a, a hard market in reinsurance. Yeah. It's been a hard market in a lot of specialty no, insurance lines as well. And I think that would we be at $4 billion at the end of 2023 if you're seeing nothing but rates falling since we started in 2019? No way. We'd probably have to have packed up and gone home because it, you, know, you wouldn't have got that kind of run into a market where growth would have been in the way that Convex has it been possible. Do we look at short-term opportunities and weigh them against longer term? Yeah, quite. Is the portfolio that we've got in 2023 exactly what we planned? No. I mean, because we made certain price assumptions, which in some areas we've been fortunate and we've seen better increases. And in some areas we've seen prices fall. So you do adjust. The worst thing to do is go, right, I've got a business plan. I'm going to do that come hell or high water, particularly from a volume point of view. because that, that's do, just do more of what's good and do less of what's not so good. Yeah, because the business plans, it's your best guess at a point in time. I mean, I think you sometimes get people who put more effort into the business plan than they do into the actual execution around it. And that just feels foolish to me because you've got to react to what you see. You've got to have those long-term themes which have to be well-developed and thought through, and then adapt to actually what the market is offering. Something you said earlier reminded me of something that you also said down in Monte Carlo was about clients, about customers. You'd said we managed to simultaneously annoy our investors, which we've been already spoken about in a reasonable amount of detail, but also our customers who had, obviously, this is on the reinsurance side, those cedents had large increases, big changes in terms of conditions, big increases in their retentions which were quite painful. And obviously, we, as now has transposed in another high-frequency cat year, that absolutely is painful, particularly when you're a primary writer, you can't adjust as quickly as a reinsurer can because you've got so many more contracts and regulators and other things to deal with on the ground and you know, in the local market. You mentioned about being able to be there for your customers over the longer period. Do you think we're moving away from our customers? Are we losing our customers? Because captive usage is going to be at all-time highs, and that's over quite a long period. Do you think we're losing touch with those customers? Are we losing relevance? Relevance is something people worry about, particularly at the end of soft markets, but they don't tend to worry about so much during a harder market. Yeah, so are there opportunities to serve our clients better? Absolutely. Should you be sympathetic because people are paying more and getting less coverage for paying more? Absolutely. But at the same time, everybody knows that the insurance industry and the carrier part of it, we do have to return the appropriate level of value to our shareholders. And we've, we've not been doing that. So it's quite interesting as you think about it, particularly in the reinsurance space. If you look at the returns the reinsurance industry has been making, they have been far worse than their insurance clients for four, five, you know, six, maybe even some Longer. years. And that's why reinsurance franchises were worth less than insurance franchises. So it's irrational as to what's happening. It's not just for the hell of it. You said there's more regulatory constraint on insurance lines. Well, the lack of regulatory constraint and the ease with which you could enter the reinsurance business also kind of plays into the other side of it. Yes. If we say there's more inertia in insurance, then of course, that's for good and for bad, isn't it? Yeah, quite. Once you're in, you're in. And that's quite good because it's hard for others to come in their higher barriers to entry. But it's great being a nimble reinsurer, but it also means that other people can be nimble and they can be reinsurers quite quickly and compete with you. Yeah, absolutely. And they do. 
you know, but that's dried up a bit, hasn't it? And that's uh, driving some of the shortage of supply. So you don't think that customers are, that it's just that it's been painful for them to readjust and they perhaps have been used to more pliant terms for, for quite a long time. I suppose some of them are probably young enough not to have really known a hard market. There's a bit of that, but there's also, I think the actual demand for insurance products and reinsurance products is going up. And I think that's a reflection of how risky people perceive the world to be. And you mentioned captives. It's very seldom that people buy the entirety of their insurance products from captives. And you've seen uh, captives play an absolutely vital role in the insurance industry for a long period of time, particularly covering those uh, hard-to-service uh, risks. And most captives uh, still buy reinsurance. Most mutuals uh, still buy reinsurance. So I wouldn't necessarily see companies retaining more of their own risk as a negative for the industry. It might be slight negatives for distribution, but for the carriers, I mean, I love doing business with companies that like to retain risk as well. Especially if they understand risk more, the more they retain, the less likely they are to think that you're in some way ripping them off. Yeah, exactly, because they, <laughs> they, they will they be retaining the losses They as discover well. the price yeah. themselves, that they, they know all about it. We mentioned about casualty, about Stephen's comments, you know, three or four years ago when he first started about casualty. And certainly that has become the consensus to emerge in the last couple of quarters would be that we had an insurance hardening and then we had a reinsurance hardening in property and then fairly neutral renewals in casualty. In fact, perhaps even extra supply last year with a certain amount of players wanting to diversify into casualty away from their property. But the narrative seems to have changed to be that Yes, insurance, property, and casualty hardening. Reinsurance, property hardening came next, and now it's the turn of the casualty reinsurer to harden. Is that the right consensus, or is it just far too simplistic? I think it's quite simplistic, but it is what's happening, isn't it? It's, just, um, <laughs> it's my job to make things sound simple, you see. So, yes, do you think that's what's going to happen, or it is happening? I think those are the signs, absolutely. And to what sort of degree, then, do you think? Not in any sense of it being as dramatic as it was for the property last year. It doesn't feel like that's going to happen. There's less retro influence in the casualty reinsurance market than perhaps there is in the property catastrophe space. And it was definitely, as you think about one of the drivers of the property hardening was a very rapid reduction in the availability of retro. So it's definitely coming. How do we fit in something like DNO in this, in the has become the sort of bet noir of some of our quasi-regulators in the market. Been some very strong words said about what's been happening in the DNO insurance market. Was the, the, the word was moronic to describe some of the behaviour. Is that just what happens in individual classes of business from time to time because they're not hugely liquid? Changes in supply and demand can affect pricing quite dramatically. You know, you go to a small market like aviation, the price can double and they can halve again. It seems like, you know, all within the space of a couple of years. I think that's why you need to think about actually having a reasonably diversified portfolio, because the individual cycles can be quite attenuated. We observed some quite significant price reductions in that DNO marketplace. And so coming back to that planning point, we're well under our plan for those lines of business. And that's a good thing. I think throwing words like moronic around is maybe not. It's not that helpful, helpful, is it? No. But, yeah, and you'd seen a very substantial increase in prices following certain markets withdrawal in 2020, 2021. So people coming back in and trying to push price to get access to business. And 
there's quite an interesting different facet for the DNO market where you tend to get a lot of layers on every single program. And so people are writing substantial portions of individual layers as opposed to slightly broader uh, layers that you might see in other lines of business where you have more of a co-insurance effect. So you get a lot of stacks effectively almost where everyone writes their own layer yeah. sort of on top of the next one on top of the next one. Exactly. And so you can see some very strange things happen and you did during the hardening phase of that market where you were seeing layers that had higher attachment points pay higher rate on lines than layers that had lower attachment points. And that at some point in time that you know surprise surprise that flips, that reverses because that that doesn't seem right. It's a bit like when you know when economists see the you know the yield curve inverting, you think, well, that, that can't last forever. That's not logical. <laughs> and it doesn't last forever. <laughs> and it's not logical, no. No, quite. So, do you think it's all just a bit of rough and tumble? In that, if price adequacy is there, then underwriters should write business that is price adequate. We're very happy with the DNA book that we've got. I mean, it's a bit smaller than we wanted it, but it's still. It's a great portfolio business. But you don't feel it's some sort of canary in the coal mine, the first part of the market to turn? I don't, no, I don't particularly see it as a canary in the coal mine. But, you know, what prices will look like in six months' time or a year's time is not something I'd hang my hat on. I mean, one of the reasons why we go about being very careful about how we record today's prices is so we can have some level of certainty. This is what we charge today. And in Convex, we do a blind survey of the executive team and senior underwriters. And one of the questions we ask is, when do you expect to see the first quarter of aggregate rate decline? And the answer is always 18 months into the future. <laughs> and, and it won't be me, it'll be someone else. And it won't be me, it will be somebody else. But at some point in time, so, so far we've been wrong because it's been further out. At some point in time, we'll be wrong because it's closer in. We're sitting here in your fantastic offices in what we will call the scalpel. I don't, I'm not sure if you call it the scalpel. But I do, yep. 52 Lime Street. We can just about see where you started out, your grand construction project of Convex over at St. Catherine's Dock. I would be able to see if I, if I lean out too far, I'll be away from the microphone, so you won't be able to hear me. So I won't do that. So into your construction project of Convex, of what you had in your mind, have you built the platform that you wanted to build, or are there still bits that you want to add on? And of course... You know, when you had your grand vision four and a half years ago, were there things that you could then say, well, in year four, in year five, we will start to add these other platforms, other parts to the platform? Because I suppose when you start, you say, well, I just want to have a license here and there and a team here and there. Are there other places where you want to have a license, have a team? Not a burning desire at the moment. Because, I mean, certainly in previous incarnations in your long career, you had lots of offices and lots of places, lots of people, lots of teams. Yeah, got the T-shirt. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think there's an awful lot you can do from a predominantly London and Bermuda platform. So as I think about the carrier, I think that from a platform point of view, and obviously we have just that efficiency as well. Is it? Yeah, that efficiency and that and that focus. And so back in my previous job at Catlin, which and we did open a lot of businesses, and some of those were tremendously successful, and some of them were less so. It's very difficult to get scale in lots and lots of different geographies unless you go inorganic. And I'm not certain that I kind of like that as a prospect. I always think it's, yeah, you look backwards and you see ACE, which is now Chubb, and you see Excel, which is now AXA. And 
one of them bought INA and one of them bought Wintershell, uh, yeah, largely as the let's get lots of licenses and become proper global businesses. Now, you can sort of look at what happened with Chubb and you can see enormous success for that, but not without a certain amount of pain and worry. And you know, if you go back and look at you know, the reporting around Brandywine and... Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and, and if your balance recent, sheet goes back to the 18th century, yeah. there's always going to be something in there. Yeah, no, no, quite. Yeah, so as I think about convex and convex of carrier and sort of going back to that broadly at 2.5% of our addressable market, maybe if I get optimistic about the future, seeing that increase you know, to maybe a 5%, I think we can do that largely with the current platform set. And I suppose at some point, if you get to a certain size, once you're 40, 50%, have you ever got to 40% market share of anything, which obviously no insurer ever has, because it's always much more of a fragmented market than broking is, for example. I suppose even then, you, of course, you wouldn't be able to outperform at that point, would you? Because you sort of have to take what the market is giving you, even though you can make a lot of the market yourself. But you do have to also just take it because you, you like a big tracker fund at that point. You can't outperform. You can perform the market. You maybe slightly just you take a point or two extra, but you can't really go any further than that, can you? Yeah, we're in a co-insurance market. So once you start to get above 10% of a client's business, then they want to be in a co-insurance market, then there starts to become natural constraints. Very difficult to have a co-insurance market where you've got two people with 50%, because it's not really co-insurance at that point in time. So whether it's 10 or 15, or but there's an upper ceiling to the percentage share that you can take, and then you don't want to write everything. And so miraculously, you come to a very scientific 5%. You know, <laughs> Something else has happened in the time that you've been building Convex is that automatic underwriting, or obviously it's been around forever, portfolio underwriting has been around for as long as there have been delegated authorities and proportional treaties. But in a more specific sense, this algorithmic underwriting, we're using a lot of smarts, artificial intelligence and other things. Is it something that's appealed to you? Have you seen this developing and thought, well, you know, is this something we should be getting involved in? We're by and large a complex risk underwriter, so either through the insurance book or the reinsurance book. There are some of our lines which are a bit more high volume biased, but by and large a complex risk underwriter. And I'm not certain that algorithmic underwriting is the best way of doing that business. It's because there's not big enough numbers. Perhaps there's not big enough numbers. And then, I mean, you might be okay at the moment because the market's relatively hard. But as the market comes down the other side, there's a lot of incentive from the broker community to get the absolute best deals for their clients. Well, quite right. And absolutely quite right. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't agree more. I suppose we need to see it in a soft market, don't we? Presumably. Well, but if something goes to naught to a couple of billion in a hard market, which is great, presumably it should also go to back to zero again, unless somebody's playing with the dials uh, to say, oh, we'll just slightly increase your risk appetite and increase your tolerance to bad pricing or whatever we do. And it's very difficult for insurance companies to shrink. If the actual GPW is going down aggressively, maybe the trackers are an algorithmic underwriters. Are, it is easier, at least, to send the algorithm to the golf course, metaphorically speaking. You can just turn it off. Yeah. I mean, you're you, not ca you, causing any personal problems. You can. So I'm intrigued by it, but have I thought that it's the right solution for Convex to make major investments in at the moment? No. So if we go all the way back to the early 80s and the beginning of my career in the insurance industry, I think there was 430 syndicates in Lloyd's at one yeah. point in time. And between, you know, sort of 90, 
something and 95 that came down to 100 odd and a little bit more one of those businesses was a company called Secretan, and they used to say we will follow xyz leaders and then we'll write five percent of everything they're not one of the ones which actually made it through that gating process. Because you was... wonder, but yes, were they being selected against? Obviously, they followed them when they were shown the ability to follow them. So, if you're so... not leading, you don't necessarily get to see everything, do you? So, Exactly. So is the game going to be stacked entirely fairly? Is it going to be entirely commoditized and ease of access and all of those other things? Doesn't feel to me to be yet proven. Well, that's good. So I'll talk to you after we've been through a horrendous soft market and, the, and then I'm we'll see how you feel there. <laughs> no, I, I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. Of course, we all know that it will come at some point. Other things that come to everybody are particularly new businesses that are built on venture investments. Is that Those investors have to have a capital event of some description. We've had a lot of IPOs this year already and with varying degrees of success, but certainly none of them have been cancelled as far as I'm aware. What sort of capital event might be the next event for Convex? Because if you're coming up to a fifth birthday, that's one of those numbers that you hear in VC circles or five or seven seems to be these prime numbers that they're interested in for their own funding. I know everyone says they've got really, 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 really long-term funding that's practically permanent, but you've been a public company, you've worked as a public company before, you've floated before. Would that be the avenue that would be most likely for a capital event for Convex? Yeah, so I'm obviously going to take the opportunity to say that you really like your investors and they're great. Well, they are, and I do. But we were very deliberate about when we were choosing the investors that essentially there was a 10-year window on the money. And so after five years, clearly we're getting closer to the end of the 10 and years. And it's better than you thought it might be. If you're above projection, was that be I, fair? I Would it mean I, that you could be accelerated? Or you'd want to stay that, longer. Have I said we were above projection? I don't. No, no, I don't, I, I don't think you did. I don't think you did. Think you did but you, one would assume that the market's been pretty good in the last four years, perhaps better than you thought it was. So I'm not certain whether I would say that, actually. I would say that we're, we're actually pretty close to where we thought we might be. And there's always a range. But, but coming back to that sort of self-adjusting sort of nature of either you have losses, in which case you get price increases, or you don't have losses, in which case you make quite a lot of money um, and the prices come down is what drives a lot of the sort of medium-term rate outlook. There's really three things that in time, and we're not at the right point in time at the moment, Convex could start to think about liquidity, both from our shareholders' point of view. You're increasingly seeing sort of reorganizations of private capital. Those things seem to be becoming much more common practice and particularly for the brokers you've seen. On the breaking side. It certainly seems to be that there is no need to float if you don't want to. Obviously, there are lots of capital partners you can partner with. You have to recycle some every few years. And a number of the brokers actually get to quite sizable businesses without going through the necessity of being a public company. But obviously, being a public company is something that is also potentially at some future point, an option, and one which we might like to think about. And the third is always, is there some type of trade sale? Yeah, so it's a long way of saying we've not taken any of the obvious options off the table. Really, our focus at the moment is growing uh, and really driving the data and technology strategy. At some point in time, obviously, there will need to be a liquidity event, but that's not a burning platform for us. That's really good. No, I get that. Yeah, you sort of get windows that are open and windows that are line. And at the moment, Convex is really focused on growth, 
and actually sort of improving that operating platform. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me. Is there anything that we've missed that you wish we'd spoken about? I don't think so. No, I think that was a really good interview. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>